Cradio.org.au I would like to talk to you at length. I would like to listen to you and know what you think about yourselves and the world. But the time I have been given is so short. You who feel the need for healing, the need for love, the need for a friend, for Christ. Perhaps I love you more. Living the Legacy, an exploration of the charisms of Blessed John Paul II with Sister Bernadette Pike. Welcome back to Cradio for part two of the introductory talk for a series on the spirit of John Paul II. My name's Sister Bernadette Pike and I'm very excited to be with you. I would be a lot more excited if you were in the radio studio with me and we were able to see one another and talk, but I'm, I'm also in America at the moment, so even if I was in Australia it would be difficult, but it makes it even more difficult that we have such a distance between us, so... I'm grateful for this opportunity to, to explore the charism, the gift of, that the Holy Spirit gave the church through John Paul II with you. And I look forward to your feedback. So in the, the first part of the introductory talk, well, as we finished off, we were talking about the effects of modern philosophy on how, it, how we've come to this point where individualism, relativism, secularism, has become so well entrenched in our Australian culture. We talked about how the shift in ideas formed a shift in attitudes so that the average person grows up learning to think that the human person is the source of reality, of truth, rather than being taught and coming to experience that truth is something that is is objective. It is something that that can be found in our concrete experience, but goes even beyond that, and that the source of all of that truth is God. We had a look at how that state in within our culture had come about. Now we want to turn our, our attention to how this attitude impacts upon the way that we answer the famous question, quid est homo, who is man? It's a question that's existed within the heart of man throughout his history. Philosophers have been trying to answer it. Scientists now are trying to answer it by, by defining the person within the concrete material of the human being. And we can see that through the modern era, the recent in recent times, because there's been a shift away from objective truth, a shift away from God's divine wisdom, what constitutes man has become arbitrary criterion, depending on basically who you ask. So, for example, Peter Singer, who was an Australian, is now, I believe he's still at Princeton University in America. He was instrumental in setting up the bioethics department at Monash University. So most people who were trained in bioethics within history recently have studied Peter Singer's books 
been taught by him or by one of his students. So his thought is very, very, very influential and has really impacted a lot of people who are working in the field in the area of bioethics and biotechnology. And in his thought, he suggests that in order to be human, you have to meet certain things. Now, for him, this has even changed over time. But he uses this to explain, for example, why we should allow abortion and even infanticide, which is killing the child after the child's born. Because he said nothing magical happens between when the child's in the womb and just out of the womb. So it's they still have the same characteristics about them. They still don't um, don't have the they do, don't meet his list of what it requires to be a person. So through his list he can justify things like infanticide or bestiality or different things. Peter Singh is not the only one. There are lots of other movements we can see um, that have flowed from this way of thinking. So we can see with the Nazis that Jewish people weren't considered to satisfy the class of what it meant to be human. In Rwanda during the genocide, we can see that a whole tribe of people who were called cockroaches didn't meet the criteria for being human. So as a consequence of of relying on our own ability to come to know truth, to answer the question about who man is, there's been an unprecedented violation of human dignity over the 20th century. All these different forms of what is known as reductionism they focus on, on one particular part of the human person and allow that to define who man is. So it might be consciousness, it might be rationality, active rationality, it might be not having a particular disability, contributing to society, being of a particular race. And through this method, you can rule out certain groups from the category of being human. Now, it's totally natural if I can define who man is, that I can learn to treat him as an object rather than as a subject. So it makes sense that you could see a woman for the sake of pornography, a child for the sake of child pornography, as an object for pleasure, rather than seeing them that they are made for their own good, for their own sake, seeing them as a subject with all this dignity. So we've learned to reduce the person in, from this integral vision of who man is to a particular aspect that we can use for our own sake, for our own selfish purposes. And this is so common, it's just so common in society. If you're, not just in Australian society, right, right across the board, if you're a woman who, I, I think if you would, you would agree with me too, there's a sensitivity to the way people treat you. If we look at women particularly, we, we could say that there is a an entrenched, almost innate mistrust that a lot of women have of men and of other people, almost expecting to be used as an object for the other person. It makes it very difficult for men who are trying to to love the woman and to take care of her because there's such a she puts up such a guard to protect herself because it's just it's so normal. And some women don't even consciously understand that that's why they're putting up a guard. They might wear clothes or act in a certain way to attract attention that that isn't going to be good for them, that isn't respecting the fullness of their dignity, but that it's all that they know, that that form of using them has become 
for them what constitutes love, what constitutes feeling good about ourselves. But nevertheless, there is this protective way of looking after ourselves because we we know what it's like, even if we're not totally conscious of it, we know what it's like to to not be appreciated and we long for that. So this idea of redu- reducing who the human person is and not having what John Paul II calls an integral vision of man has been so dangerous for us. We've we've really lost the sense of who man is, what his needs are, what the whole purpose of his existence is. So Blessed John Paul II didn't just focus on the dignity of the human person so much in his talks because he thought it would make people feel good or because it was a way to justify church doctrine. He was responding to a blindness that had developed in the consciousness of man and that was producing devastating effects. And we can just see this in the increase of depression. People don't know who they are or what they're called to. They don't have any hope. What's life all about? We spend so much time constructing our own persona and we cling to that thing that seems personal to me, ways of doing things or saying things that people say, oh, that's so like you, because they're an expression of who I am. I doctor my Facebook page, for example, untagging certain photos, deleting posts, as I determine how I want people to perceive me. And I have to admit, I too am guilty of this as well. Sometimes if a photo, if someone tags me in a photo I don't like, it's off pretty quickly. I am in a way, like so many of us, trying to create an image of myself. But for so many people, this is done without a point of reference, without actually knowing what my concrete dignity is, what God created and what he's created me for. In the end, I become attached or a slave to whatever it is that's giving me a sense of worth, whether it's Facebook, whether it's a particular way of dressing or acting, having certain things. So it's so important for us to learn about what it actually is that constitutes our dignity. So this is not just so that we would feel good about ourselves or or maybe say no to certain things that would be treating us like an instrument and not as the subject that we are, but it's also so that we can actually make the right decisions in our daily life. Our dignity is not just a fact, but is something that we grow into. So our identity actually defines the way we are in the world, our purpose in life, the way we fulfill our purpose. So if my identity and worth is based on what I do or have or wear, then this will guide my behavior. I'm defined by my success in the business world, by my wealth or by the success of the business, and that becomes a priority for me and will guide my decisions. Personal relationships can be put to the side because there is this drive within me to meet this standard that I've set for myself. And to the extent that my worth and identity depends on what I look like, I'll be looking for affirmation from others to see that I'm achieving this purpose because we all inherently want to flourish. If we don't have an accurate vision of who man is, of his dignity and the reason for why he exists, our compass is not set to being more, but on having more or doing more. John Paul II says, has, has said that as long as an authentic sense of humanity prevails in the minds and hearts as a point of encounter among those who have goodwill, then in the limits of my possibilities, I can help to build a world always more worthy of the human person. 
So it's going to, to help me to become more and to help others to become more. It'll be a, a guide and a compass for all my dealings in everything that I do. So it's really important that we stop to consider where some of these common attitudes have been unconsciously absorbed into our way of viewing ourselves and the world. John Paul II said in Crossing the Threshold of Hope that new generations are growing up with a new positivism. So we have to become aware of this and to see where it is affecting our values and our, our beliefs, our view of the world. As modern philosophy took a turn inwards to the human person and you can just imagine a person removing their gaze from God and looking into themselves and, w- and when we do that you can see this is this is the movement that's been happening. So how was the church responding to all that was happening? Well just before this time St. Thomas had produced the Summa. He through him the Holy Spirit had provided a concise overview of the faith, a a deposit of the metaphysical truths and the wisdom from God that covered so many topics right across the board. And it's a treasure for the, the history of church and always will be a treasure that we constantly come back to. And it was, it was presented at that time in a, a way that was suitable for the culture. But the church continued as modern society changed and philosophies and ideas started to be um, become more evident within practices the church was still using the deductive principled way of preaching the faith a long time afterwards even though the world was starting to change and if you want to learn a little bit more about this way of presenting the faith you can find some talks by Father Richard Hogan, who's an American priest, and he has a really marvellous way of explaining that the church's way up to Vatican II, the church's way of presenting the faith was this um, principled, uh, deductive and objective way of doing things, but the society had moved to a place where it was subjective, inductive and experiential, and that there was a, it was a mismatch. So in this traditional way of the church's, way of living the faith and sharing the faith with people. The idea was that you wrote, learnt the principles. So I, I remember growing up with my mum who, my mum learned according to this system. So I remember my mum saying, we exist to know, love and serve God, know, love and serve God. So, I mean, it worked. It got into my head, know, love and serve God. I, I remember it too, even though I didn't learn it in a catechism class. But I didn't know what that meant. And why would I want to do it? Who was God? Why was it even relevant for me? So we were supposed to learn to apply them, but there's an increasing difficulty in knowing how to integrate these truths, and there was then too in response to everyday problems. So before Vatican II, there, you could see masses of people leaving the church because, okay, so you're giving me the truths, but how does it actually answer what it is that I'm actually going through at the moment? The world was seeking truth in the concrete. So we remember how we were discussing the modern philosophies. It didn't see abstract principles as practical or relevant or real. So not only the principles, but the sources of the principles, remember God, and the teacher of those principles, the church, was seen as unreal and irrelevant. That's not to say that the teaching tradition of St. Thomas is no longer relevant or wasn't useful at that time. 
this, as I say, this heritage of faith has been given throughout history, not just through Thomas, but through many others as well, and through different people, and not just for their time, but for each one of us as well. The problem was that it wasn't being conveyed in a language in a way that fit with the signs of the modern times. So how was the church responding to what was actually going on in the world where there was this discrepancy between the two? Well, it was unsure of how to engage with the world and it was suspicious of so many of the trends that were happening. So she had what Pope Benedict XVI has described as a bitter and radical condemnation of the spirit of the modern age. Or John Paul II in Sources of Renewal, in his book Sources of Renewal says, the church reacted in the first part of the 20th century, using a method of separation to preserve the purity of faith. As many of us do when we sense a threat, we shut it off, protecting ourselves. So the people of my parents' generation talked to me about a time when companies gave jobs only to Catholics. We had in Perth two major shopping centres, Ahern's and is it Myers? I'm, I'm not exactly sure what their name was back then, but there were two major one, major ones, and the Hearns people employed the Catholics and the other company, maybe Bones, maybe it was Myers, I'm not sure. They didn't employ the Catholics, so there was a separation between the two. Catholics hung around with Catholics, they played sport with Catholics, they found work in Catholic places, and there was a whole culture but the church was becoming insulated from the modern world so the church was being faced with questions like you know what's the whole relationship between faith and reason and science faith didn't seem important anymore what was the relationship between the state and the church which which seemed increasingly separate between the church and other faiths what was the relevance of church to everyday men pope john the 23rd in the late 50s could see that the church was losing her effectiveness in the world and even with her own flock. So wanting to open the church's windows so that the church could see the world and the world could see the church, he opened the Second Vatican Council. So for those of you that aren't sure what the Second Vatican Council is, it's a series of meetings where the bishops and groups of experts come together and Throughout the tradition of the church, when this happens, normally it's to clarify a particular heresy or to review the doctrine of the faith. But on this particular occasion, between 1962 and 1965, when the bishops came together, it was a pastoral council to help the church to look at her relationship with modern man and the way she conveyed the faith. In his opening address to the council, Pope John XXIII said, The greatest concern of the ecumenical council is this that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously, that is, a more compelling proclamation of the gospel. The substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing, and the way in which it is presented is another, and it is this latter which must be taken into greater consideration. John Paul II who attended all four sessions of the Vatican Council, said afterwards when he was sharing the fruit of that council with his diocese, we need to ask, what does it mean to be a believer? This presupposes the truth of faith and the pure doctrine, and it calls for that truth to be situated in the human consciousness and calls for a definition of the attitude, or rather the many attitudes that go in to make the individual a believer or a believing member of the church. 
So what we're looking at here is not a particular teaching, but the church was being guided by the Holy Spirit to help people in a particular way of thinking and acting, a particular way of being with one another. John Pope, in his opening address, Pope John XXIII, also made reference to the divine providence was leading us to a new order of human relations, a new way of relating to one another. And the, the our late Holy Father has said on so many occasions that he affirms the traditions, all the deposit of faith, all that the church offers the world. But he says now that um, the path passes not so much through being and existence as through people and their meeting each other, as through the I and the thou. This is from Crossing the Threshold of Hope, he said. So our fundamental dimension of man's existence is always a coexistence. So we need to, we, we, we can say that the charism, this gift of the Holy Spirit through Vatican II, that was the message that came through Vatican II in terms of focusing on this way of being, on human relationships, was lived out in John Paul II. So what we're going to do through this radio program is to look at, well, what is that? That key message of Vatican II, this new order of human relations, this new way of preaching the gospel, that what does that look like in concrete, in the concrete? What is it, what took place in John Paul II's life so that we can learn from that as well? Before we go into the concrete, we're just going to spend a couple of talks on the, the principles or the attitudes that underlie or form the consciousness of a person that helps them attend to the other person and relate to the other person in the way that John Paul II did. But for now we finish with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We ask you, Lord Jesus, to continue to open our eyes to see the strains of thought that are common in today's society that remove truth from you, the source of truth. We pray, Lord, that you give us the desire to always seek the truth, objective truth, divine truth, and help guide us and show us the way. We pray, Lord, that you give us an adequate anthropology, an adequate understanding of who man is and what he's called to, and that you teach us, Lord, about this way of being that you were prompting the church to um, turn her attention to, to start to live more fully this new way of proclaiming the gospel, this new way, new order of human relations, of being with other people. Again, we pray through the intercession of John Paul II for all of these things. And we ask you also, John Paul II, our blessed Pope, to teach us to entrust ourselves to our blessed Mother who always guides us in all these things and teaches us to grow closer to the heart of Jesus. Amen. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to Living the Legacy with Sister Bernadette Pike. For more, go to cradio.org.au.